Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like Songum and my songs gon' break through like a running back. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, June 8th, 2023. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here to bring you up to date with all the latest Formula One news. Hammy, my friend, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, another day, another day without being indicted. So personally, I'm <laughs> That's doing. A win. I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. Um, I know that some of our listeners, especially in the East Coast, are are probably living something of a surreal existence right now yep. with some of the the smoke that's blanketing from D.C. to Washington up through New England is pretty crazy. And, yep. you know, you and I were talking about this a couple of days ago, but since maybe 2014, 2015, that's been not unusual for us out here on the West Coast from San Diego up through Vancouver. So it's on the one hand, maybe it's a wake-up call for people on the East that haven't experienced this. But, you know, I sent you an article the other day because a couple of Major League Baseball games, I think, were canceled because of this. A WNBA game was canceled because of this. And, of course, the genesis of this are, are massive wildfires burning out of control in Quebec, in Nova Scotia, in, in the Maritimes, in Atlantic Canada. But there's been a lot of noise this week online about the fact that is is the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal at risk? And some of our listeners were kind enough to reach out over the couple of last couple of days, and they indicated that hey, Quebec is a big place; it's three times the size of France, and there are fires here, but they're not directly impacting the city of Montreal at this point. But Autosport has also rep- reported this week, and Global News, which is a Canadian network TV station, has reported that at this point the organizers uh, fully intend to proceed with the race. So while we lost Imola. Uh, recently to flooding that probably is very much a con- kind of attributed to climate change. It doesn't look at this stage anyways, it doesn't look like we're going to uh, to risk the Canadian Grand Prix. And, you know, a couple of our listeners had reached out over the week and asked specifically at Stormfuel, what are the chances that the Canadian Grand Prix gets canceled due to the wildfire situation? At this point, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. But Mark, as you and I know, the wildfire smoke can come in overnight and be gone the next day or can come in and stay for weeks. Yeah, I mean, we're still 10 days away from from race day itself. Uh, you know, it, it's weird, Hammy, because I was thinking about it uh, this morning when I was getting ready to go to work. And and I realized we don't have a race this weekend. I feel like we should have a race, like just with uh, Imola being canceled and everything. It, it's kind of thrown like my own timing for the season off a little bit. But yeah, I mean, we we've seen it here on on the west coast that the situation can literally change overnight. And I you know it's interesting. I was talking to my mom. Uh, this, this is a year or two ago, and you know, just much like yourself, I'm also a first Can- generation Canadian. You know, our families moved here from from elsewhere, 
And I remember my mom telling me that uh, she was talking to a friend of hers about that time. This is about 10 years ago. And she was saying that when she was growing up in the 50s, like they used to wake up and there'd be like ash on the car and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not going to get into the debate about climate change because to me, there is no debate. I think it's pretty obvious what's happening. But I feel that just based on some of those stories and the fact that, you know, you and I are kind of like almost latecomers to the game, that I think also we were fairly lucky for a large portion of our lives, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, when we were growing up, that we weren't impacted uh, by by events like that. But good news for the moment that, that Montreal isn't uh, going to be affected. And uh, let's uh, cross our fingers that uh, things improve over the next uh, 10 days, not just in Quebec, but anywhere else in North America that's been ravaged by these nasty wildfires over the past uh, several weeks or so. Okay, let's uh, jump into things. Uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to the Race Weekend uh, magazine. So that's uh, The Race Weekend, R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D. Enter in 10% at uh, checkout to save uh, 10% on a subscription. Also, check out RacingExclusive.com. Tease and the crew there have uh, provided us with some wonderful swag for the Fantasy League. And uh, the grand prize for that will be a one-half scale autographed Max Verstappen helmet. And that comes with a COA, so you know you're getting something that is uh, 100% legit. Um I'm going to pass over the next couple to you because these are a couple of your wheelhouse and, you know, I'm not comfortable begging for money, but you have no shame. So I'll let <laughs> I, you do that. I, I am. <laughs> I am not. I, sorry. I am comfortable <laughs> begging for money. So a couple of things, one, and these kind of will all weave together. Trust me somehow. <laughs> but uh, we announced a couple of days ago that we are officially hosting our very first Scuderia F1 Formula One Grand Prix watch party. Uh, it's actually going to be at my house here in the <laughs> leafy suburb of Coquitlam just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia. I will be there. Daily will be there. We will be signing autographs. We'll be providing food. We'll be providing drink. And the only thing that we ask for people in, that will be attending is that you make a donation to the Canadian Mental Health Association. You do not have to commit yet because the race isn't until Saturday night, November 18th. Now, what I'm hoping to be able to do at this event is, uh, aside from flexing on and helping to promote race weekend product in, in the magazines in person, is I'm hoping to have our line of merch ready to to sell and show off on that night as well. But we probably will be coming to the greater audience to ask for a little bit of assistance. And, you know, I, I think you daily and I put a ton of effort in the show and we want to put more effort into the show. And there's so many things that we want and need to be able to do. But I think financial considerations have kind of been the main barrier mm -hmm. uh, blockage for us to be able to do some of those things. So uh, we, we might come to the general audience and look for some creative ways to fundraise to help us achieve some of these objectives. So stay tuned for that. Not the least of which, by the way, is finding a way to replace your circa 2008 Pentium 3 <laughs> laptop with a 20 minute battery. Um, the other kind of news story as well that's kind of unrelated to Formula One, but maybe a little bit related is Fast 10 is coming to digital video on demand this week, June 9th. So if you didn't manage to catch it in theaters, you can rent it. I think it's probably gonna be about 20 bucks in the next couple of days. I'm going to I'm going to watch it. I am going to have a lot of trouble watching it because the last few have been unwatchable in so many ways. I, I love the original three, but I will watch it just because it's become a tradition in in our household. Daily, are are you interested in Fast Ten? I think it clocks in about four hours and twenty minutes. I would love to, but considering how slammed I am for time, anything over like about like 30 seconds is, uh, you know, like <laughs> a real demand on my time. But uh, yeah. a TV commercial kind of fits your, 
your personal lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll definitely check it out, uh, especially if it's uh, being uh, released. It's uh, you know for for rental or whatever, and all the the, the usual platforms. Definitely worth uh, checking out. You know, there's one thing, I, and I'm meaning to check it out right now today, or maybe this week on Netflix. Tour de France Unchained dropped, and it looks they, so. They it looks like they've really kind of cornered this thing. Like that, like it, it looks very much like the like the DTS model. I don't know at this point if box to box films is involved because they're the ones that have done what is all five seasons of um, of Drive to Survive. But if not, it looks like Netflix is kind of really using that 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 template. You know, I'm only one episode in, but it has a very familiar kind of. Uh, it's got a very DTS vibe to it. Let's just put it that way. Daily, the next time that you and I do an F1 off-topic podcast, which I think we're probably due for, we'll have plenty yeah, of time yeah. in August during the summer break, I, I, I genuinely want to ask you how that sport survived the Lance Armstrong uh, Dude, experience because I have no experience, idea. I have no idea. Yeah, that's that's, and I'll I'll relate to you and talk about Barry Bonds, who's still one of my favorite MLB players in that period in baseball. But anyways, moving back, dude, I wanted to share this real quick. Okay. So I found a really cool Reddit post by Catching Is One Thing, and Catching Is One Thing says the 2023 Spanish Grand Prix, which we saw last weekend, had 65 overtakes. 42 of these were shown in the live broadcast. This is the most at Spain since 2013, which had 74. Last year's race had 48. 2021 had 51. 2020 had just 32 overtakes. So basically half of what we saw this year. The circuit average in the hybrid era is 35. The circuit record is 94 in 2011. The number of overtakes certainly do not mean a more entertaining race. It can indicate that overtaking is easier and mean more things are happening on track, which has the potential to make a race more exciting. So I thought that I thought that was pretty interesting. 65 overtakes. And you you spoke to that when we did the race review last weekend, that it felt like there was a lot. And I kind of poo-pooed that by saying, yeah, it was all at the end of the first DRS zone going into T1. Those don't count. But compared to some of the recent years, yeah, many, many mayor overtakes. And kudos to the broadcast team for capturing 65% of them on air. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting too because uh, you know, we didn't really get a chance to talk about it the the, the week before that in, in in Monaco, which is the first time that Formula 1 took over the the broadcasting duties away from the local broadcaster. And I think they did a pretty good job. I I, I saw some criticisms online that that some people weren't too super thrilled with it, but I think in general when it comes to Formula 1 knowing what it takes to you know, to really focus in what's important on the track. I think generally they do a pretty good job, but I mean, if they manage to get, you know, basically three quarters of all the action, like the overtakes during the broadcast, that's actually pretty phenomenal because I mean, that was what about a 66 lap race, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, we basically had one overtake per lap, which I think is, uh, which is pretty good. Um, you know, 94 in 2011, that seems exceptional. And I'm just trying to remember when, when I was there live in 2014, I don't remember it being an exceptionally exciting race. Like I, I don't remember a lot of like action on the track and we were sitting 
on pit straight, like the, the start finish straight, just opposite the uh, the pit exit. So we had a pretty good view of the cars when they come out of like a turn, what is turn 14 now, I guess, or maybe it always was into start finish straight. You know, there's a little hump and then it drops down as it comes past uh, pit exit into turn one. So we had a pretty good view of watching them, not only at the start, but just uh, watching the cars come down and into turn one. And I don't remember very many overtaking because we thought that that was the one of the great, the good part to sit in the track there because we saw start we saw them coming out of the pits didn't see anything in the pits live you know we weren't that close but going into t1 and then also the circuit kind of folds back in on itself so we saw a couple i think we saw turn six and seven and then and then eight as it wiggles up the up the uh, the, the hill there so i don't remember a lot <laughs> of overtaking let's put it that way so interesting that's i think that's an interesting stat but i think the key in that um, that 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 little statistic there from catching is one thing is the last sentence when they say it can indicate that overtaking is easier and means more things are happening on track which has the potential to make a, a race more exciting so maybe that uh, I, I think that's a very good point so maybe that last that last point is subjective you know like like Maybe my definition of exciting is different from yours and other people's, but I thought in general it was a it, it was a fairly entertaining race, Hammy. Okay. Agreed. All right. Let's jump into the meat of things. So let's take a quick look at, uh, well, not a quick look. Uh, so the first one here, maybe I'll let you take this one, Mark, uh, because uh, this is a, you know, like this is a techie, nerdy, geeky thing. And uh, this has got a pretty cool tie-in to, to Formula One. It it does. And for those of you that are listening, you may have picked up on the fact that I am a massive Apple fanboy. And every time there's a worldwide developers conference, which is the big event that Apple hosts at the beginning of June every year, and they tease and they showcase upcoming products. Well, it's been rumored for years that Apple has been working on an augmented reality product, basically goggles that connect to your face and kind of feed you data visually. So they announced their product and the product is called, and I'm going to quote here from the Apple press release, Apple today unveiled Apple Vision Pro, a revolutionary spatial computer that seamlessly blends digital content and the physical world while allowing users to stay present and connected to others. Vision Pro creates an infinite canvas for apps that scales beyond the boundaries of traditional display and introduces a fully three-dimensional user interface controlled by the most natural intuitive inputs possible, a user's eyes, hands, and voice. Featuring Vision OS, the world's first spatial operating system, Vision Pro lets users interact with digital content in a way that feels like it is physically present in their space. The breakthrough design of Vision Pro features an ultra-high-resolution display system that packs 23 million pixels across two displays and custom Apple silicone processors and a unique dual-chip design to ensure every experience feels like it's taking place in front of the user's eyes real-time. couple of big takeaways. One, it it for what it is, basically a computer that you wear on your head, it looks pretty cool. The price tag, Daily, I don't know if you've heard this yet, clocks in at three and a half thousand dollars US, which translated to Canadian dollars will probably be about four and a half thousand dollars. But the F1 tie-in here is that during the Worldwide Developers Conference, they were playing all sorts of videos that basically showed how somebody would use this in real life. And they were basically visualizing it as an engineer that's wearing these goggles and they're using their hands and their eyes and their voice to drive commands and do apps and modeling and engineering and all these kind of cool things. But the Alfa Romeo C43 
as per as per Reddit user just underscore hold me identified the Alfa Romeo C43 was mentioned and illustrated in this product video, basically showing that, hey, you know what, you can combine spatial computing with the physical world for modeling and things like that. And the video itself seems to show a physical present um, Alfa Romeo C43 with virtualized airflow flowing over the aerodynamic surfaces of the car. So again, I don't know that you need to go and dig this up, but I thought it was very cool that Apple decided that Formula One is now relevant enough that they would put it in their, their product showcase video. So pretty cool. And I think as well that Apple isn't anticipating that typical home residential users are going to be buying this product, but that for engineers and, and people that that use super high-end programs that would benefit from spatial computing, that it might be very cool for them. Yeah, definitely. And you know what 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 my takeaway from this is apart from the fact that the, it's very very expensive and it's also very very cool tech is I think it's cool that that Formula 1 each and every week and month and year is just starting to percolate up into the mainstream consciousness all the time. And, you know, Mark, I, I joked on the show with you years ago that I, I won't be convinced that that Formula One's really cracked it into the mainstream until I go down to like the local 7-Eleven and Lewis Hamilton or a life-size cardboard replica of Lewis Hamilton is trying to like entice me into buying like a case of Bud Light or a packet of Twinkies or something like that. Then I think that's say, fair to say that they've achieved like market saturation but very cool i think that's a, a really cool uh, little story okay um let's take a, a look here at a couple more stats i think we'll talk about these and then we'll take a quick break because we want to jump into the next uh, story and uh, devote some time to it so um at the 2023 mean race pace excluding outliers so red bull uh, led the way so um mercedes were 0.28 of a second behind ferrari 0.64 seconds uh, behind uh alpha sorry uh, aston martin 0.87 and that was uh, actually a tie with um, Alpine. Uh, Alpha Tauri then clocked in at 0.93 seconds, and that was uh, ditto for Alpha Romeo. Then you had Haas at 0.96, <laughs> McLaren at 1.03, and then Williams a light year behind at 1.44 seconds off the pace compared to Red Bull. So, and then uh, here, this is a stat that comes uh, courtesy of Steeler Fever 97. And this is comparing Red Bull's 2023 start to other dominant seasons. So 1988, uh, McLaren, they led 97.3% of the laps. In 2023, Red Bull have led 96.2%. Just through the first seven races. Just for context, that's through the first seven races. Thank you for that. And then uh, Mercedes in 2014 was 86.2. 2016, Mercedes 83.2. Ferrari in 2002 was 79.4. And then 2004, Ferrari 69.9 so wow I mean for, for sorry uh, Red Bull right up there 96.2 percent of the laps led so far this year through seven races not quite as dominant as uh, 1988 McLaren but you know what, what's interesting I, I think maybe I mistakenly said the first time around 1998 but 1988 McLaren and I think that's a good comp because wasn't that the year that McLaren between Senna and Prost they won every single race between the two of them 
Does that sound a little bit uh, familiar? So <laughs> anyways, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens by the time we get to Yas in several months uh, from now. So most labs, uh, sorry, most labs, most laps led. Lewis Hamilton tops this chart with 5,447. And Michael this is for Schumacher. his career, by the way. Yeah, career, so through yep. their career. Yep. yep, career stat. And then MSC, also a seven-time world champion. So Michael Schumacher is second with 51, oh, sorry, 5111, sorry, 5,111 laps. Sebastian Vettel, 3501. Ayrton Senna, 2987. Alain Prost, 2684. Max Verstappen, 2143, and then Nigel Mansell, 2089. You know what the interesting thing is? And there's no surprise here that every single one of those drivers is a world champion or a multiple world champion with the exception of uh, Nigel Mansell. So very cool. Hey, Mark, before we jump into the the, the, the break here, do you want to read the uh, the email here? I know you're really excited yeah, to, to get I, this I one because this was do. fun. So, so, yeah. So shout out Betty Chow for sending us this email and, and Benny's friends with a couple of other listeners of the program, but he writes, hey, Marks, that's me in your fantasy league, referring to the Yuki's farts <laughs> handle. I'm glad to know you share the same childlike sense of humor as me when you paused and giggled the first time you read the name. Big props to you guys for the pods you put out each week. I'm a drive to survive child and listening to you guys over the past two years helped me learn a lot about F1. I, like you, am a huge NBA fan and I really like the analogies of F1 to the NBA and American sports in general. Fun fact, at Vetti11, the guy that helped you perpetrate it earlier this season is my lifelong friend and roommate from back in university. Keep up the great content. Much love, Benny. That's awesome. Thanks for the email, Betty. And I feel like we got to flex on this perpetrating thing. I think we should come up. I think we should ditch the handle. We're always up to speed with Formula One. I think it should be something like perpetrating our way to the top of the Formula One podcast chart since 2016. That's a bit clumsy, but you know what I mean? I mean, I like it. Yeah, I like it. We'll, 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 we'll flex on that somehow and work it in. But uh, very cool. Thanks for the email, uh, Betty. All right, let's uh, take a quick break here. We'll come back. We're going to talk about Concord Agreements, potentially new teams and a bunch of cool stuff like that so don't go away we will be back in just a moment passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the show. So, 
it's done. It's over. The doors are shut. The curtains are closed. Everything's locked in terms of new potential entrance onto the Formula One grid. So we've been talking about this uh, for a little bit of time. There, every once in a while, you have one of these stories of uh, you know different groups in different parts of the world. We've talked about you know some you know potential uh, new teams maybe from Asia, the Gulf region, and then the Andretti story that's just been there for what at least two years. I mean, in one form or another. So all interested parties were, you know, supposed to send an expression of interest that was opened earlier this year. It's been open for a a number of months. So that is now closed. We don't know exactly who has uh, submitted bids other than, you know, the the, the speculation that we've talked about in previous programs over the, the, the past several months. But Mark, this is exciting. So whoever has submitted a bid, this is now going to be torn apart and read over and reviewed by the FIA and and we'll we'll get into this in a, in a moment because um you know we're they're talking about a new concord agreement which they want to expand the grid up to 12 teams which mean you know potentially two more teams so mark what's your your feelings on this i'm i'm kind of excited a little bit nervous too because i hope whoever makes the cuts and you know they they've set some pretty stringent um, requirements to enter the sport. I just hope that uh, whoever you know makes the final cup the cuts can live up to the expectations. Yeah, according to an FIA spokesperson, uh, the deadline for applications for potential new entrants is now closed. The FIA is in the process of an initial review of the applications received. There will not be any communication during this part of the process as the FIA engages with applicants in respect of confidentiality. While it may necessary to make clarifications with the potential entrance. The FIA, according to racer.com, would not confirm how many applications have been received at this stage, but the governing body and F1 do have the ability to accept multiple new teams should they wish. Because of course, the 2021 Concord Agreement allowed up to 12 teams on the grid. Um, when announcing the process back in February, the FIA explained what it would be focusing on when analyzing any submissions, according to racer.com. At the time, the FIA said the assessment of each application will cover in particular the technical capabilities and resources of the applicant team, the ability of the team to raise and maintain sufficient funding to allow participation in the championship at a competitive level, and the team's experience in human resources. For the first time ever, the FIA continues, any candidate would be required to address how it would manage the sustainability challenge and how it plans to achieve a net zero CO2 impact by 2030. Any prospective F1 team would also need to illustrate how they intend to achieve a positive societal impact through its participation in the sport. This would help meet the mutual aims of the FIA and Formula One management. So the Liberty side. So this is interesting because we knew that the FIA had opened up this expressions of interest process and they were they were accepting applications. We also know that the FIA doesn't have the unilateral ability to accept teams. They can make recommendations, but ultimately the, the commercial rights group will have to be the ones that make the final decision or the final arbiter. And we also know that the current crop of teams, the 10 teams on the grid currently, have no appetite with the exception of McLaren and Renault for very specific reasons to allow new teams onto the grid 
based on the current Concord Agreement. So you mentioned something a couple of minutes ago, and I think it's probably worth incorporating this into our conversation now, which is that it's being reported that Stefano Domenicali, Formula One, and the FIA are close to announcing a new Concord Agreement. And if this is a concept that's new to you, the Concord Agreement is effectively the master framework that binds the teams, the FIA, and Formula One management liberty into the championship arrangement. It's basically, here are the terms upon which we come together. Here's how we distribute wealth. Here is the number of teams that can compete. Here's the amount of money that a new team would need to pay. It's all assembled through this master agreement. And then of course, spun off from that is the technical regulations, the sporting regulations, the financial regulations. But most recently, the Concord Agreement was updated in 21. Now, in the 21 agreement, it said, hey, we are we will allow up to 12 teams on the grid and that any new team would pay $200 million. And of course, I think that's become very controversial because that $200 million is intended to be split amongst the existing teams as a compromise or a concession for giving up shared revenue. Uh, but the reporting that is coming out of Italy and Spain at this point, and I think this is from the Spanish version of motorsport.com, the reporting is that as part of the Concord agreement that Stefano Domenicali and the FIA Formula One Management Group are intent on expanding to 12 teams as part of this new agreement. But furthermore, that that expansion fee is going to be increased to a billion dollars. And again, there's no confirmation of this, but this goes back to what you and I have been saying for years, that the valuation of an F1 team should probably be about a billion dollars when you talk about an NBA team worth four, five billion dollars. So I think that on the one hand, the FIA has been accepting these expressions of interest for teams that are interested in joining the Formula One grid. And they all want to join because $200 million is a bargain and they'll be cashing checks like crazy within a couple of years once they paid off some of that upfront sunk cost debt. But ultimately, I think what's probably going to happen here is they will consider those bids kick them down the road until the new Concord agreement is in place and then make ex- or accept teams based on those new terms. But some very, very exciting stuff. And the last thing I should add is you've been watching F1 for decades. In the past, anytime there's been a Concord agreement, it has been a very, very stressful stressful experience that has often torn the FIA and Formula One and the teams apart and almost blown up the championship because historically it would be Bernie dictating terms to everybody and everybody revolting at the terms that were being dictated upon them, then ultimately them accepting. But since 21, the teams in the FIA and Formula One have really found some great common ground. And I think the amount of trust that the FIA and the Formula One teams have put in the commercial rights group and Liberty because of the exponential growth they've helped create in the sport will probably make this a pretty smooth process. I was just uh, thinking, Mark, as you were talking about that, when did a Liberty officially take over? Was it 2017? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's been about half 17, early 17. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. It's been, I I thought it'd been about half dozen years. I mean, yeah. I mean, Bernie did what he did with the sport for like 40 years, but I mean, the the exponential growth and interest that we've seen in the past half dozen years is, is not by accident because, you know, once Liberty came in and took over from, from Bernie, they started doing things that Bernie never would even consider. He, there was like his own private domain 
Spain, really. He kind of dictated terms, as uh, as you very well you, know, you correctly pointed out. I mean, there was no such thing as uh, you know taking videos and posting them to social media, even like from official teams and and things like that. I mean, it was pretty ridiculous what you could and couldn't do. So, I mean, basically, what what what's happened is that since Liberty's joined Formula One and you know they've they've taken over as the commercial rights holder. They've really dragged Formula One to where the rest of the world already was. I mean, look at where the NBA or the NFL was or Premier League was half a dozen years ago. It was light years ahead of where Formula One was. So, I mean, Formula One has, I would say that they've caught up to some of these big major leagues and sports entities, but they've certainly closed the gap. And I, I think that's you know it, it's it's reflected now because you see not not just drive to survive but you see the interest we were just talking about the the whole bleed over into this uh, the latest apple launch you see people now walking down the street wearing f1 merch several years ago if you walked down the street wearing a red bull or a mercedes or a ferrari hat or shirt or something like that you were almost pretty much in the minority i mean you were the minority i mean seeing other f1 fans around if you could get a hold of the merch to begin with was almost uh, non-existent but it's it's interesting like you say though that it was a very very stressful time i mean how many times under bernie's watch did we have you know threats of like a breakaway series and you know basically Basically, it always seemed like Ferrari was because they've always had that. They've always had the muscle. They've always had the power. They've always had the clout that if Ferrari was to leave, they'd probably take a bunch of other teams with them. So I wouldn't say it's been particularly stress free. I know the last time that they got this thing renegotiated was during the you know the first year of COVID, and it kind of came down to the wire. But still, they got it done. At, at a time when nothing else was really happening. So, you know, props to them uh, getting it, uh, getting it done, but a billion dollars potential for a, a, an entry fee to join the grid. You know, Mark, if we had the money right now to start our own NBA team or an NFL team, what, what do you think the expansion fee for one of those leagues would be? I mean, uh, it's got to be the four- multiples. Yeah, so it'd be multiple I think, billions. I, yeah, dollars. I think you just look at the recent sale, right? Like the the most recent yeah. sale of an NBA team was the Phoenix Suns at four bill, and the most recent sale in the NFL was the Washington Commanders at six billion dollars. So, yeah, uh, presumably, I, I think that's a fair kind of index for at six billion dollars. So, in a sense, sure. And again, this is different, right? Because like a professional sports, like a team sport, you you have an arena, a stadium that you call your own, and you sell tickets. 17, 18, 19 times, 40 times a year, right? Like you have the ability to generate all this localized income, which you can't with Formula One. But I still think a billion dollars to get on the grid is is a bargain when you consider what the financial upside is from sponsorship and marketing and from the constructor's prize fund. I'm going to throw a word at you now, and I think this is a very, very North American term that I think it gets interchanged all the time. And and I know where I stand on this one, but I'd just be interested to see if this term you know could be applicable to to Formula One because quite often I think you hear this more for, from athletes maybe from management and like say coaching or like front office uh, people in uh, in North American sports and that's uh, you'll hear athletes talking about the franchise oh I love playing for this franchise I, I find that sometimes that that's kind of like an interchangeable with like like team you know it's a, but to me a franchise is a McDonald's or a 
Tim Hortons or something like that. I mean, it, it seems very foreign to me. I mean, you would never hear a player for, say, Manchester United or Bayern Munich or, you know, the, the, one of the big European football clubs saying, I love playing for this franchise. It'd be, it, you know, this club. So I don't know. In, in the terms, like, if we're going to kind of split hairs a little bit here, are, you know, would Formula One teams be a franchise? Like, where would they kind of fit into that 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 model? I mean, I Daily, find it kind I've, of an I've interesting the, conversation. I've had the exact same thought in the past that, you know, we talk about baseball and basketball and hockey and football teams as being franchises um, and major league soccer, especially because that's the, in, in very different complex ways, they very much are franchises relative to individually yeah. owned clubs. But you're right that, that in European soccer, the clubs transcend the league in which they play. And in North America, the clubs are, the the clubs and the the clubs are integral to the league and the league is integral to the club in the sense that those individual sports teams don't exist outside of the the NFL or the NBA and the NHL that they're a franchise of that league whereas in European sports these clubs stand alone and transcend the league in which they play and we see them openly willing to break away from the leagues in which they play so i think that maybe is why but i hear you 100% i i think I think you could have an F1 franchise. I'm sure we'll hear from our listeners about whether they think so or not. But I think I think it's a, a franchise. Yeah, it, it's it, again, I think it's a, a very, very North American term when it comes to talking about entities in, in pro sports. But, you know, I, I can't help but wonder. And I know that they've they're, they're keeping this, you know, pretty much sealed tight. You know, this is above top secret who's uh, submitted bids. But I think I think it's pretty safe to say that Andretti Motorsport would have to be one of them. If they don't make the cut this time, is this is is this it for them? Do they just say, okay, well, you know, it's it's not going to happen I, and, you know, we're just going to turn around and walk away because, I mean, they, they tried buying Sauber and that didn't work and they eventually became Audi. So they couldn't get in through the front door, the back door by buying an existing team. I don't think that if they can get in through the front door and and, and putting up the cash to build a, a, a team from, from the ground up, I would have to think that that would pretty much uh, do it for, for, for uh, Michael Andretti's hopes to field a Formula One team. And, and I'm not really too sure how I feel about that. Uh, honestly like uh if i would be disappointed that a um that a team like an andretti team like a, an american team would not be a thing or at least an american team under say michael andretti anyways so really let, let me what, interject there okay. because i i was thinking okay. about this earlier today so there's a lot of people that are really upset that the F1 and FIA won't just rubber stamp some of these teams and let them on the grid at $200 million. And they get really upset. The FIA is being greedy and Formula One is being greedy. And that's not really the case at all. That at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Liberty is a publicly held for-profit organization. And if somebody's willing to pay a billion dollars to get on the grid, you are obligated to, to maximize that potential income. That you don't just, hey, you know what, because it's in, in writing, we're, we're committed to that $200 million. You're like, you're not committed to anything. You can charge whatever the market is willing to bear. And I was thinking about this on a personal level earlier because it doesn't benefit me in any way if a team gets on the grid for $200 million. Like, I'm priced out at F1. Like, I think you and I talked about this. Like, I will probably yep. never see an F1 race in person again. It's just, I, I'm outpriced. So it doesn't matter to me. Like, why should... 
why should Andretti Global get on the grid at a bargain discount amount and then start reaping in the financial rewards, right? Like it's not their sport, it's Liberty's sport. And if Liberty wants to charge them a billion dollars to keep the other teams happy, do it. But I just, I, I find it weird that some people get really defensive around that $200 million number and they feel like mm-hmm. Andretti's owed an admission to the sport at that tag price. And I, I just don't think it's fair. Like, look, we've been priced out. Fans have been priced out. Why should that team get on the grid for a bargain discount price and then reap massive amounts of profits at our expense, directly at our expense um, as, a, as a reward for doing so? I just... I, I just think that F1 needs to do everything. Because again, this this F1 boom may not last. It may not last. And if I'm Liberty and I can get a billion dollars, um, I should be chasing that billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, and I hope, <laughs> I, I say, I think they're just doing their due diligence. I, I'm crossing my fingers and toes and doing all the superstitious things that, that the FIA is doing more than their due due diligence vetting all that these these expression of interest that uh, that that they do the right thing because as a big soccer fan you know i grew up with like the the legend of the old nasl which boasted names like franz beckenbauer eusebio uh pele among i mean i mean they were like global superstars in their day. The and NASL, the NASL for, no. for the younger listeners and non-soccer yeah. fans was the first major league professional continent wide soccer league in North, the North American soccer league. Right. Yeah, and exactly. presumably it expanded too quickly. It oversaturated the market and then it collapsed in the early eighties only to be not resuscitated, but only for it to be, succeeded by major league soccer when did major league soccer come 96 a year or two after yeah, the it, world cup in 94 yeah, that's that's correct like um it was kind of like a weird thing because like after the the nasl folded in like the early 80s like you said and, you know, thank you for that uh, really you know crisp summary on the, the the history of the nasl there was no continent-wide professional tier one soccer league in north america and so in 1994 the usa was granted rights to host the world cup but you know that that void was still there so it was contingent that if they were granted the the you know, the, the world cup for 94 they had to boot up and get a a, a new league going so you know that that is major league soccer and it's been going it started out fairly small so i mean it's been going for a couple of decades i mean the big news this week and you know i always kind of uh, find this a little bit interesting is i always kind of like go back to like the uh, you know the thoughts about like the nasl is that the the, the announcement that uh, uh Lionel messi is going to come and play for inter uh, what was it inter miami and that that's kind of like crazy but i mean they're they're well established now and i mean you look at some of the the, the franchise expansion fees that they're throwing around for new clubs in major league soccer i mean that's that's pretty crazy as well like uh, i mean but the thing is when you go back to the nasl is like they just grew way too quickly i mean formula one obviously is kind of well it's more than kind of it's very very well established and i can see where the teams get excuse me where they get get concerned is and why they want this anti-dilution fund is that you know they 
don't want to bring in a substandard group to be one of these potential one or two new teams. So I, I, I totally get it. And it's just uh, the, the amount of money that they're throwing out there, just uh, the rumored, you know, like expansion fees or anti-dilution fund donations or whatever they want to label it is just absolutely mind boggling. But that's that's just to get there on the grid. That doesn't cover any of the cost to to to, to spool up a factory and a workforce and a wind tunnel and and drivers and and all those sorts of things it's uh it it's kind of mind-boggling but it's it's also pretty exciting that uh, that this is happening right now like under our watch more or less right yeah all right, let's uh, move along to the next story. I'm just going to touch on this really quickly before we go into another break. Don't really want to get into it too quickly. Other than that, uh, Max Verstappen's sort of kind of father-in-law, well, it's the the, the father of his uh, girlfriend, uh, uh, and that is uh, Nelson Piquet. He was uh, fined for some very horrendous things that he said on a podcast in relation to uh, Lewis Hamilton, and we're not going to repeat that here, what, what he said, but uh, he was fined nearly a... Uh, well, it was a, a million dollars. It was five million Brazilian reals, so that's uh, about the equivalent of nine hundred and fifty grand. Um, so he appealed that, and anyways, he's lost the appeal. So now he's going to to stump up. But uh, some of the comments he made afterwards, kind of making himself out to be the victim, I thought were, well, yeah, kind of on brand and unfortunate. But uh, anyways. Let's uh, move on from that. We'll take a break. We'll come back. And we got some good news here. If you're a fan of uh, George Russell, we'll get to that right after the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the program and time now to look at the Silver Arrows and Lewis Hamilton has been hinting for a couple of weeks that he's literally about to put pen to paper to sign a new deal to stay with uh, Mercedes but his uh, teammate uh, George Russell has uh, apparently signed a new deal that will keep him with uh, Mercedes for the long term. No announcement. Then this comes uh, courtesy of PlanetF1.com and in the article that uh, I believe was written by our friend Sam Cooper. Um, doesn't really have anything to say on term, uh, length of term, yeah, or there, the, the the value of the contract. It's not typical a particularly F1, helpful right? article. <laughs> yeah, typical F one. Yeah. So I, I I would summarize this by saying. I was expecting that we were going to lead off tonight's show by announcing the new Lewis Hamilton contract extension. Uh, There has been no news. Lewis had said on the weekend that he expected to sign something as early as Monday. He may have signed and they just have, they've just chosen not to announce it, but a number of different places are reporting that Mercedes has made a decision to sign George Russell to a quote unquote long-term commitment. Um, Long term in this case doesn't seem to be particularly long. The rumors are is that he's been signed through the end of 25. So um, good news for Mercedes if if they are at the end process of wrapping up both of their drivers for the next couple of years, uh, because obviously both of these are incredibly talented drivers that are very cosmetic, charismatic, <laughs> and uh, and media friendly. But again, rumors for now, and hopefully maybe this weekend or early next week, we'll be able to confirm that Mercedes has signed a officially Lewis Hamilton and George Russell, but uh, the rumors certainly very strong this week that George Russell was on the verge of being locked up through 25. 
Yeah, you know, Hammy, I don't know about you, but you know, signing a two-year deal to me is not a long-term contract. Look, look at the contracts for you know other drivers in George's age group. I'm thinking about Charles Leclerc, Max Verstappen, Lando. They all sign multi-year deals, like in the neighborhood of four to five years, is what you know is kind of like um, you know percolated up into the, the 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 public realm. So just just two years for George. Okay, it's not like the one-year kind of rolling contract that poor, poor old Valtteri Bottas had with uh, with Mercedes literally every year that he, he was there with the team. So, I mean, that that's something. But, I mean, George, I mean, you have to think that he could be the future of this team once Lewis decides that, uh, you know, he's had his fill and he wants to, 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 to walk away. But, you know, I, I just can't help but wonder what this team would be capable of. I, I, I know what they're capable of. I mean, we watched them do it for nearly a, a decade, but uh, I kind of wonder what Mercedes could do should they, uh, you know, finally get their car figured out and and put a dominant car into the hands of Lewis Hamilton and George Russell. I think that's uh, you know could be potentially very scary for everyone else, except for you know everybody that uh, doesn't like Red Bull. <laughs> in which case, they'd all be salivating at uh, at the mouth. But yeah, two years, you know, that that's good for George. But I necess- wouldn't necessarily call that a uh, a long term uh, contract. Okay, so uh, let's stick with uh, Mercedes because uh, they made some uh, headlines this past weekend in Spain for the right reasons. But you know, some of the, the the different comments that you see around there is that, yeah, okay, they they had a really good race, but it may or may not necessarily be the you know the, the breakthrough that we've been expecting to see from Mercedes yeah. for what let the me, past let me eighteen months in. or so. Please so, go ahead. So Mark Hughes over at the race.com wrote a really great article earlier this week that throws a little bit of cold water on the excitement around Mercedes. And of course, Mercedes scored a P2 and a P3. George charged through the field to secure that podium. Uh, Lewis looked very, very good. Uh, he writes, um, is Mercedes now set to pull away from Aston Martin and Ferrari and regain the status of chief Red Bull chaser it enjoyed at the end of last year? And he writes, and it continues, almost certainly not. There's a huge element of track variability in this three-team part of the grid anyway, but the traits of the circuit to Catalonia really muddied the waters. And he continues, as we discussed in our qualifying analysis, differences in tire performance here can actually be more important than aerodynamic performance. This track's long, high-speed bends have always demanded a lot of the left front tire, but that has been intensified by the replacement of the previous slow final section with a return to a near flat out blast turning an 800 kilogram car 90 degrees while flat in seventh gear at 160 miles per hour absolutely kills the front left tire but and he continues and i'll I'll conclude here but combine that with cool conditions and the hardest range of compounds and there's a supremely tricky balance to be found between qualifying and race so cool and qualifying that half the field were struggling to switch on the fronts by the beginning of the lap helping put russell and sergio perez in the q2 part of the grid and allowing Lando Norris to star in the McLaren to go third quickest, but giving such big heat degradation that it was a two-stop race with lots of temperature management. So I think his argument here is that, one, it's, it's far too early to conclude that Mercedes is now 
permanently affixed to that P2 position in the Constructors Championship, that Spain is not an ideal, not an ideal frame of reference for what we're going to see for the rest of the year. And given the aggregate, given the nature of the track, given the weather, and given the tire compounds that they were using, the harder range of compounds, that ultimately the tire performance, tire management, and tire choices this weekend had a greater impact on the performance of the car than the aerodynamic makeup. So again, Mercedes big changes, the front suspension, some surface on the top of the car, including the side pods and the floor were the big changes. But what he's writing here is a lot of that was negated by the tire performance and the needs of the tire, especially that front left. So interesting. And again, I think you, I was very excited because I thought, hey, look, now it's going to be a real mix up. Aston Martin fighting with Mercedes, fighting with Ferrari, if they can get their stuff together. But I think his his fear here and his conclusion ultimately is that Mercedes may slip back behind Aston Martin in the standings um, and that we need a bigger sample to determine whether really uh, Mercedes has cracked the the needs of their aerodynamic formula. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, uh, as refreshing as it was to see them have a good weekend and have a very good race on Sunday afternoon, let's keep it in perspective. It was only one race, and have they over? You know, have have they 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 caught up and passed Aston Martin? You know, maybe, but th- you can't really make that call just yet. You know, so, some people might want to be if, uh, you know, they, they go and have a couple of good, yeah, I called it right from the very beginning. Well, good for you. But, you know, let, let's get a little bit more data, especially when you hear comments from Fernando saying that that Aston's going to be bringing updates to Canada, also to Britain. And he feels that, uh, that you know, in, in his words, his not so you know modest words that will allow them to crush the competition. So, I mean, clearly Red Bull has been in a class of their own this year. And Aston Martin, I wouldn't say they've been in a class of their own because there's been such a big difference in what Fernando's done and what Lance has done. We don't need to get into that discussion because I think we've had this discussion every week for the past two and a half or three months already, Mark. But the but but the point is that Mercedes, sorry, uh, Aston Martin have a very very good car. It it, it does obviously have uh, you know it does have some limitations. It's a little bit draggy, and I, I know, but um, you know th- they have stood out from from everyone else. They they've been better than Mercedes. They've been better than Ferrari, but they have been able to to catch up to to Red Bull. So th- there's that. So it, it's interesting to hear like these comments and some of these different uh, theories. Going Going around, but uh, we, we just have to, to sit back and, and and observe and watch and see what what, what happens. So, you know, is, is Fernando just blowing smoke and just you know you know flexing on upgrades that um, you know they think are going to do you know really propel them forward again? You know, maybe maybe not. We've we've seen in the past where a team has said, "Oh, we're going to bring updates to the next couple of races, and it's going to be a game changer," and it just hasn't delivered. So you want to jump in there? I saw you take a big. <gasps> so please jump in, Mark. No, 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 no. I, I I think you're making some really strategic sense, and and I, I think I agree with you. Um, a couple of other things, just while we wrap up this topic of Mercedes upgrades, and I'm glad you mentioned that Stroll and Alonso are very excited about the fact that they're expecting to bring upgrades to 
to Canada and things like that. But um, there was an interesting George Russell comment that I read in an article on planetf1.com, and he was dismissing their performance gains as a byproduct of the side pod changes. I think we've all been transfixed by the side pods on the W13 and the W14 just because they were so unconventional versus the rest of the grid. And when they finally ditched them, I think we all thought, yay, finally, that's what they've needed to do all along. But the change of the side pods for Mercedes was only part of the formula of the upgrade to the car. I think the bigger changes were the front suspension and and the floor. And George seems to agree with that. And, and he says in this article, it's not the side pods that makes the difference, he says to Sports F or Sky Sports F1. You know it may be a factor, but the magic isn't in the side pods. And you know we brought that design to the car to kind of rule it out, the side pods. But the magic was done underneath of the car on the floor. And they're the same for every single team. I'm sure Red Bull could put those side pods on their car and they'd still be quicker. So yeah, a little bit more complex than that. But nevertheless, really happy with all the work the team have done and validation that the steps we've made are in the right direction. So I thought it was good to kind of conclude that because while we've all been transfixed and focused on those unconventional zero pod side pods, I think the bigger upgrade, and this is what George Russell is clearly concluding here is, hey, you know, it's nice. And we needed to do that to kind of just prove that that wasn't a performance detractor, at least from an aerodynamic perspective. We've done it now, but we believe that those two tenths, those three tenths, that tenth of a second that we've picked up, it's actually from the underside of the car. It's from what you can't see. It's from it's from the the floor. Yeah, but it's also interesting too because uh, apparently uh, you know uh, George and uh, Lewis were showing a, uh, you know quite a bit of love to Mick Schumacher, who was uh, Mercedes' uh, reserve driver. Mick, of course, spent the last couple of years driving for Haas, and they were saying that during Friday practice that the that the car was just very difficult. It was very hard to to uh, to drive, and then uh, Mick uh, was in the simulator back at uh, Mercedes uh, Brackley uh, headquarters, you know, putting in the work putting in the time there on Friday night helped them uh, get some uh, answers uh, that they they needed to to really unlock some of the potential that these uh, these upgrades had and then the rest uh, is history because uh, you know for, from from there on they uh, they had a much uh, better weekend but you know if uh, you know and and I guess you could say that was a little bit of luck, uh, you know, a good luck for Mercedes. But, you know, I, I'm not a real believer in luck. I think you manufacture your own luck to a certain extent when you when you when you work at it and, and plot away at it. And I think that the, um, you know, the answers that they got uh, from from mixed simulator work was just a rather fortunate timing that really worked out uh, for them. Anyways, uh, Hamilton had to say, quote, Friday was a real struggle with the balance. It was way out of the window. It was very hard to drive, very unpredictable. And then we did some great work overnight we've got a great team with mick back in the simulator on friday night and he did some great work which helped us get on the right track on saturday end quote and that is from a article on motorsport.com that was written by uh, jonathan noble so you know mick obviously not uh, you know He's not like a, a super experienced uh, Formula One driver has like 10 years experience or something like that. But I mean, uh, he did some very, very good work. And what a great place for for Mick to end up at. I mean, he lost his seat at Haas. But I mean, you know, I, I, you know would you not turn down that? Or why would you turn Dude. down that opportunity oh to be a reserve gosh, driver? Dude, right? I, I've always had a soft spot for Mick because one Same. of his lineage and his DNA, but he just genuinely seems like such a great guy. And it was painful watching him 
rot away at Haas because a young, any young driver short of Max, you could put Max Verstappen and just because of his personality and and his kind of psychological makeup, he could thrive in any situation. But I think Mick just needed to be in a more supportive, more nurturing environment. And I think he was thrown to the wolves in that Haas situation. And I think his career could have been very different somewhere else. So I think the best possible outcome for Mick, short of being in a Formula One car this year, was being a part of the Mercedes Formula One team because he can add value, which is exactly what you just described. That on a Friday night, he's back at the factory in the sim to the early hours in the morning, allowing them to accrue data that allowed them to make adjustments to the car that allowed them to be better on the track, which is phenomenal. That's that's fantastic. But he's also surrounded by world-class drivers and a world-class organization, which couldn't be said about Haas. So that makes him, hey, look, this is a guy that maybe spends a year, two years as a test driver or reserve driver for for Mercedes, and he rehabilitates his image a little bit and his reputation, and he gets another shot. But I think if he was sitting on the sidelines or if he was driving in Formula E, he would probably be forgotten about. But I think, like you said, the best possible outcome for him, short of having an F1 seat this year, is to be partnered with the Mercedes team. And I think this was a big win. Yeah, but what a boost for like Mick uh, to to get those uh, you know comments from from Lewis and from from George in the media just praising him for all the hard work. I mean, I mean there's some sort of validation to um, you know what he's doing there. That that would absolutely uh, have to be it. So you know, great for him, and you, I, I think he nailed it. I mean, if he spends a year or two there, at Mercedes, what what a great place for 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 him to add up. I mean, obviously he'd rather be racing, but you know uh, you know. That didn't work out, but what a great place for him to uh, to, to end up. Um, I just want to just talk uh, really quickly about this, and this is going back to uh, the race uh, last Sunday, and we're just sort of kind of bouncing back and forth between teams here. So um, the sort of generous Fernando, you know, that saying that he was going to hang back a, a couple of seconds behind Lance, you know, maybe was not as generous or maybe as genuine as it might have appeared on the uh, on the race broadcast. Uh, why, why don't you explain a little bit further, Mark? Yeah, I think there were some questions post-race about the fact that Fernando maybe wasn't attacking the the challengers in front of him as much as you maybe would have expected. And I, I think there was a lot of questions about the fact that, hey, you seem to be in a posi- better position and you seem to have better pace. Why did you not go at Lance or why were there not team orders to enable you to pass to pass Lance. Now, I think there's a couple of thoughts here. One is that Carlos Sainz finished 17 seconds ahead of Lance. So even if you let even if you let Fernando pass Lance or you let the two of them fight and he got past him, he's probably not going to catch Carlos. So in the process of fighting or in the process of overtaking, there's risk. There's inherent risk and maybe it goes sideways and maybe somebody suffers damage and you compromise all those points. So like like Stroll said after the race, like we're sixth and seventh. I was bringing the car home. He was bringing the car home. That there was no potential upside to the team by switching positions. Now, there would have been potential upside if if Fernando had significantly more pace and Carlos Sainz was mathematically catchable. And I think the determination by the team and even by Fernando himself was like, look, I can take Stroll and then do what? 
So there's an inherent risk in me overtaking him, but I'm not going to catch Carlos Sainz. And and Fernando's comments here was, I it was 10 laps to the end. I was with a little bit fresher tires, but like one or two tenths faster than him, not more than that. And I will not get crazy. I damaged one floor yesterday during the qualifying day. I didn't want to damage another one today or have him damage the floor or anything. I just tried to secure the place. For us, it's the same, sixth, seventh, seventh, and sixth. So I, I like this about Fernando. I, obviously, I, I think given his pace and the fact that he was on better tires, he probably deserved sixth place. But I also appreciate that he's taking on the role of a team player here and didn't compromise the team's day for securing one place better in the final race classification. So uh, so a pretty cool outcome nonetheless. But I promise you, if if Carlos Sainz was closer to Lance and Lance didn't have the pace to get Carlos, I think they would have swapped positions and let Fernando have a go at Carlos. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you've nailed it there, Mark. I mean, it, it didn't really make any sense. I mean, you know, it just seems so, why it seems so newsworthy, It's it just seems very non-Fernando, un-Fernando compared to what he was like uh, in the past. All right, let's uh, take a look now here. Mark, do you think that there's room for another race in the USA on the Formula One calendar? There's room because for David any Co- race that's willing to pay fifty million dollars a year to be on the calendar. Okay. That, that's the that's good the answer. ultimate good truth. answer. <laughs> and I, I love where you're going with this. So let's flash back 10, 11, 12 years. If you don't remember, Bernie, who was like the, the Formula One head supremo, he was notorious for signing contracts to race anywhere and everywhere. If somebody was willing to give him $20 million and a hope and a prayer to build a track in Antarctica, he would take that money, he would cash (laughs) that check, and he would announce it. Uh, One of the many places that he announced they were going to race was in New Jersey, uh, right on the shore overlooking Manhattan. So you'd have this beautiful backdrop of, of the city itself. And the race was close to coming to life. I think I think originally it was actually on the calendar uh, for 2023 before it ultimately dropped off. But David Coulthard has pushing to revitalize what he says is a perfect location for a fourth U.S. race. He says that one, it's a perfect place. He says that the track's elevation change of 150 feet would be one of the greatest on the calendar and would be absolutely spectacular. He says, and I quote, we tried to get a race in New York several years ago in New Jersey. I remember running in one of the Red Bull show cars. I drove part of the section of track in the F1 car and it was unbelievable. Opposite Manhattan, there was a section that made Rouge at Spa look like kid stuff. If they ever were able to reignite that plan right there, I think that would be the perfect place. Coulthard believes there remains room. This is from motorsport.com. Coulthard believes there remains room for one more event in the US, even with Las Vegas joining Austin, Miami. Uh, Says Coulthard, I think we can go to four races here in the future. When you consider the land mass, he said, and that's the utopian dream to break America. They'll all have their own flavor. They have to. State to state in America is very different. So race to race, each event has to reflect that. Austin is what we're used to, a proper track. So we turn up and go racing. Miami is a bit of a hybrid and Vegas is a playground for adults being in a city rather than than at a venue, the event will undoubtedly take over. And being a Saturday night race, there'll be a big buzz. So interesting. And I think you can probably remember this because, you know, you and I are like elephants. We don't forget anything seemingly when it comes to <laughs> Formula One. Now, anniversaries, children's birthdays, we forget all of those. Different story. Different, Different story. story entirely. But F1, 
Don't forget it. So there's some really cool diagrams and renderings that show the track and its location and what the backdrop would have looked like. But ultimately, David Coulthard's proposing that we revisit this idea for a fourth race in the US. And I, I don't think... I don't think it's going to take long for the U.S. to start searching for or considering bids for a fourth U.S. race, but logistically, geographically, financially, to have a race in the Northeast seems to be makes sense. We've got a race in the Southeast. We've got a race in the South. We've got one in the West. Um, ideally, if they're going to introduce a fourth one, you get it near that major metropolitan hub of, of New York City because that feeds a a population corridor from DC and Philly and Baltimore through New York up to New England. Like there's just so many people that are within driving distance. And I think that event would be an absolute boom, boom to the local economy and would be fantastic for F1 fans that would otherwise be priced out maybe of Miami or Vegas or Austin, or just find the process of having to travel to those races logistically very difficult. Now, of course it risks some of the shine for Montreal because you're starting to get into Montreal territory because an awful lot of F1 fans travel up from Massachusetts or Vermont and New York State to go and experience Montreal. So maybe there's a little bit of cannibalization there. But ultimately, and I think there was a, an announcement a couple of days ago that Montreal is expecting a record attendance this weekend. Um, maybe there would be room for both. Yeah, maybe, you know, and I can, you know, I'm certainly jealous that uh, I can't go to the Canadian Grand Prix next week because Montreal is a great, great city and that is a great, great track and it's always, uh, you know, great event there. So, yeah, interesting to see whether or not that uh, might happen. I, I'd have to take a look at uh, some of the, uh, you know, the information for where that proposed track would be. I mean, 150 meter or sorry, 150 foot change in elevation and a corner that would rival Eau Rouge. Um, I mean, the only pictures I've seen are sort of like plan view from the top down. I don't know what the elevations, the contours and things like that look for the area. So I'd be interested to see whether or not, uh, you know, like it would live up to, to the, the, the hype that David Coulthard is giving it, but certainly it must have some basis in reality or else uh, David wouldn't, uh, wouldn't say that. Okay. Let's uh, move along. The next one is that um, perhaps Pirelli is going to see a challenge from Bridgestone to become the, uh, the official tire supplier for Formula One. So uh, this will be for, I guess, 2026 or 2027. Um, oops, I just lost my my notes here. It's all um, good. I'll anyways. take it. I'll take it. Okay, so go, if please. you were listening to us a couple of weeks ago, you know that the FIA has opened up the tender process for F1's new official tire supplier contract. So the tires on the car are one of the common components that are supplied to all teams in a common spec from a single supplier. Uh, there's currently a process by which the FIA is accepting bids from other suppliers. And it's rumored, although Bridgestone will not acknowledge this, the Japanese tire producer Bridgestone has apparently thrown their hat in the ring. And of course, Bridgestone most recently was involved in F1 from 97 until 2010 and Pirelli took over in 2011 and they've been absent from the Formula One grid since then. But they have apparently uh, thrown their hat in the ring to replace Pirelli. And of course, Bridgestone currently provides the tires through, I think, their Firehawk division, their American performance division uh, to the Indy Championship. But very, very interesting that another tire manufacturer. And I think when you and I are talking about this a couple of weeks, we just assumed that there'd be no interest that Pirelli's been doing it for a while. This will be a slam dunk. Um, it's ultimately just a formality, this process of tendering, but ultimately it looks like there's going to be some competition to a Pirelli. 
Yeah, you know what's also interesting, Mark, is uh, in the the, the stories that uh, talk about this uh, potential uh, bid from Bridgestone is the the, the current deal that Pirelli has, which uh, was going to run from 2020 to 2023, so the end of this year, and that was extended to the end of next year because of the the, the, the pandemic. I didn't realize that, but Hankook had actually uh, been a bidder for for this as well. Yeah, so, I didn't I mean, know that. Pirelli, that was new to me as I well. Did know it. Yeah, that was very, very interesting. So, you know, I you know, I don't really have any preference as to who provides the tires for Formula One. I just hope that we don't go back to what we saw 15, 20 years ago, where you had multiple tire manufacturers in the sport. I mean, ultimately, it kind of like the peak folly of that uh, of that uh, you know arrangement was at Indy and that whenever that was was it 2003 2005 when all the you know like we only saw six cars race because was it the michelin tires that weren't safe and then they 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 just boycotted the race it was just it was just an embarrassment yeah i i would just add real quick that i'm very cautious and reserved of commonly supplied parts on these cars that ultimately I would still love Formula One cars to be purely prototype cars. But I think the sure. tires and tires and some of the the safety components within these cars should absolutely be standard supply that everyone should be like running. The halo. A common, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like everyone yeah. should be running the same the same tires. They should all be running the same halo, um, some of the same safety cell c- kind of construct and things like that, that when you introduce a another tire manufacturer, the teams that are partnered with said tire manufacturer could have the best chassis, the best aero, and the best power units in the series. But if their tire supplier produces a crappy tire, their entire season is done. Like there's nothing that oh, yeah. they can yeah. do to overcome that that deficit, um, and I just think that this is another great way. Like if you want to encourage competitiveness in F1 and still have something resembling a prototype series, you can do that by having a common tire. So I'm very happy to see either a Bridgestone supply the whole series, although I think it would take them years to get to the point of producing what Pirelli's providing today, or continue using mm-hmm. Pirelli. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, we should maybe just uh, roll this into the uh, the conversation uh, that we had about uh, potentially that uh, you know fourth race in the U.S. But uh, just building on the the the, the race uh, thread here, so apparently Formula One has abandoned all plans to to go back to Kyalami in South Africa for a South African uh, Grand Prix, and there, there's no official word why, but uh, apparently you know, politics uh, might be uh, in, involved uh, at at some level or another not exactly sure what that means but what that does mean is that the belgian grand prix at spa francochon is going to stay on the uh, on the calendar which you know as, as much as i would have liked to have seen a return to south africa i wouldn't you know i was very disappointed to hear that that you know we might lose spa for a very very long time if not uh, forever so i i'm glad that spa francochon is not going uh, anywhere at all so they're going to be uh, staying on, on the calendar so apparently um formula one is seeking 40 million dollars in public mo- uh, money can i take this one the- can i jump in on this yeah, one please. so this yeah, is yeah, this is a it. topic that I, I get very heated about so i love vegas i've never been there I love Vegas. One day, I promise I will go to that fine city. Um, but until a few years ago, despite the fact that there's two and a half million people living there, they didn't have a professional sports team. Um, of course, they had the UNLV um, 
NCAA team, but they've never had a professional sports team. They now house a mm-hmm. WNBA team, an NHL team, and an NFL team. And with the exception of the arena that the NHL team plays in, which was largely privately fund- financed, local taxpayers and the local government has contributed a ton of money to attracting teams. So the Oakland Raiders moved there a couple of years ago. They play at Allegiant Stadium. Um, it's understood that the local government contributed between 750 and a billion dollars towards that venue. And there's always these business cases about it's good for the local economy and it attracts tourism. It's all nonsense. At the end of the day, if I'm a billionaire sports team owner, I should be building my own stadium. End of story. Now, the reality is the reason that local governments and states and cities get involved is because there's always this threat that you're going to lose your team. And something that a lot of people listening might not know or even care about is that in the 1970s, the San Francisco Giants were moving to Toronto. It was a done deal. And at the time, the city of San Francisco had a brand new mayor. and He knew it was political suicide to let the Giants go. So he basically bent over and made massive concessions to keep that team. And it kind of set off this domino effect whereby every single time a team wanted a new arena, they would just threaten to relocate. And what we've seen over the last couple of decades is cities and states and counties pouring billions of dollars into building stadiums for professional sports teams. So a couple of years ago, the local government spent close to a billion dollars on Allegiant Stadium. They're now in the process of working to attract the Oakland Athletics, and they're willing to front $390 million for this. And now F1, which has been prepping and preparing the site for the paddocks um, has decided to go to the local government in Las Vegas and say, hey, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars and bringing this event to the city, which is going to attract 105,000 people over the three-day race weekend. And it's going to do all these great things for a tourism-driven city. We need you to start spending some money on the infrastructure to support the construction that we're building, to which the local government's like, "Um, no, this arrangement is done done and sealed and finished. We're not about to start giving you incremental money. But the problem is there's a precedence, which is, hey, you have a billion dollars to the Raiders. You're going to give $400 million to the Oakland Athletics. And now F1's like, well, we're investing in sports and sports tourism and bringing major league sports to your city. We want you to contribute as well. So all of that to say, uh, daily, you and I, I think are kind of like-minded when it comes to politics, but What are your general Mm -hmm. thoughts on local governments and states funding stadiums for billionaire playboys? Yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of that, uh, to, to be quite honest. I mean, considering yeah, you know, we're we're taxed to the max as it is, I'm not really too keen on, you know, doling out public funds to, you know, to 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 pro sports teams. And I guess if it has to happen, I, I just wish it would be to the like the the most minimal amount possible, but it just seems that when it comes to issues like this, that uh, that that governments, uh, municipal governments, just seem more than willing to to bend over backwards and just sort of open up the checkbook and say, "How much did you see? Say you needed? Well, how about we just sign the the, the check? You just." fill in the amount uh, whenever you figure out whatever it is. We're good with it. We'll cover it. So, you know, I, I'm being a little bit uh, facetious, but uh, yeah, <laughs> not, not too overly, cr- especially in this day and age when, you know, things are all out of control and other aspects of the, uh, you know, <laughs> finance and the economy. It just seems a, a little bit uh, kind of crazy. Anyways, just want to wrap it up here with a couple last uh, stories. So uh, this one comes from uh, an article by Peter White at Deadline.com. It's called Formula One Races into Script to TV, Felicity Jones to star in and produce drama one 
from Bedrock Entertainment. And this is interesting. So this is going to be, so Felicity Jones is uh, the star of Rogue One, a Star Wars story and the theory of everything. And she will star and produce it one, which is uh, basically going to be a, um, it's going to be a fictitious family owned formula one team. And it's going to sort of be a blend of fiction and real world of uh, formula one. And uh, so kind of an interesting theory and, you know, it's cool. I'm, not too crazy on the idea when it comes to sort of like scripted sports stories. Um, you know, I'm not really a was, you know, prior to like drive to survive, I wasn't really a big, huge fan of like reality TV, but I guess we could think about it. Sports is kind of reality TV in its own sense, but I mean, it, it's a cool kind of thing, but I would kind of tie it into the, you know, that very first story that uh, you were talking about, like with the, you know, the Apple formula one, you know, um, alpha Romeo thing we talked off at the top of the show. I think that this story is cool because it just, once again, kind of demonstrates that formula one is becoming more and more mainstream all the Great time. I, I just don't know Great if point. this would be kind of the thing i'd be it's not really my jam but it's cool i i think i've gotten to know you pretty well over the years and i i think you're probably like me that we now live in an era of golden tv there has never been yep. more variety and more selection of super high quality high production tv than than there ever has been streaming services yep. there's so much i don't watch any of it because I just don't have the time or the energy or the emotional <laughs> bandwidth to invest in these series. Yeah. So like if I watch anything, like I've got five minutes to sit down and scarf my dinner, I'm probably going to watch, <laughs> I'm going to pull up Netflix and I'm going to watch Dubai Bling or I'm going to pull up the Kardashians on Disney Plus and feel dirty after <laughs> watching it. Like I, I just can't invest in any of these good shows. So maybe, maybe, maybe I'll I'll give this one um, a try. I'm going to quickly jump to the next story because I know we need to wrap it up here. But two quick stories before we go. One, NASCAR is, according to the Sports Business Journal, in talks to return to Montreal as soon as next year. By return, of course, I mean they raced on the island-based track from 2007 to 2012 with its second-tier Xfinity series. Now, um, if you don't know, and I assume none of us do because I didn't until I read this a few days ago, but... The city of Montreal and the province allows two large-scale motor racing events per year at the circuit in Montreal. One of them, of course, is Formula One, but there's been a vacant opening on the calendar for some time. And according to Sports Business Journal, uh, NASCAR is hoping to bring their premier series, their cup series, to Montreal as soon as next year. So uh, by all accounts, they're looking to expand their calendar with a new race, a permanent race in Mon- or in uh, Mexico, and a permanent race in Montreal at this circuit. So for stock car fans oh, and wow. motor racing fans in general, uh, this is obviously very, very exciting news. And then just to quickly wrap up the show, and I don't know if the jingle's ready, but you could always add it and post uh, a quick MotoGP story tonight that, uh, oh my gosh. So for those of you that know, because you've been listening to the show, uh, MotoGP is in desperate need of not just growth, but is in desperate need of stabilizing its fan base. So while we've seen exponential growth from Formula One over the last three or four years, MotoGP, for a variety of different reasons, um, not the least of which is the retirement of Valentino Rossi, has seen fan support 
collapse. Now, it seems that uh, a new uh, executive, and we spoke about Rosamondo, who joined the MotoGP circuit from the NBA a couple of months ago, um, is eyeing the US as its primary growth objective. So currently, uh, MotoGP makes a single appearance in North America each year. They have an April date in Austin at the Circuit of the Americas, but it wasn't that long ago that they used to race in the US three times a year. So back in 2013, which was the first year that I started following MotoGP. They raced at the Circuit of the Americas. They raced at Laguna Seca in Monterey in California, about an hour south of the Bay. And they raced at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at IMS. So it looks like the MotoGP circuit is going to try the same tactic that Formula One is utilizing, which is to use the US as the engine to fuel growth in that sport. So it'll be interesting to see, especially for me as a MotoGP fan, um, if they're potentially going to add more North American dates onto the calendar. And it was also reported recently as well that executives within MotoGP have been reaching out to uh, track organizers or track owners in the US and people that have been potentially interested in investing in building new track developments that they do so to FIM, FIA, FIM, <laughs> I can't pronounce it at 1030 at night, but I uh, are hoping <laughs> that any new tracks that are modified or built from the ground up will be FIM compliant, meaning that they could host a MotoGP race. So uh, if you are a fan of MotoGP and you live in the United States, there's potentially more reason to be excited because we could be seeing the return to a two or three US race calendar in the near future. Oh, very cool. Uh, let's see if it uh, if it happens or not. All right, Mark, I think that's a, a pretty good place to, to wrap it up uh, for another week. Um, uh, before we go, if, um, oh, we had some reviews that uh, that we never got around to. Why don't we just read those quickly before we, we turn off the lights and, uh, and shut well, her down, Well, it's a perfect time uh, to, right? Because this is where we typically beg and plead our listeners to give exactly. us ratings and reviews. So if you listen on Spotify... Tap that ratings button. It means the world to both of us. We cracked 400 ratings recently, which is so exciting. And if you listen on an Apple device, if you could give us a rating and a review, that would be awesome. So shout out to a couple of folks that have given us recent reviews. Decap1179 wrote, my first podcast review. I actually had to take the time to Google how to do it, but I love the show. The Marks are great as hosts and consistently put out great content. I always look forward to their show. And this is my first listen on a Monday morning following a race weekend. Um, Bungaber um, gave us two stars out of five, which is cool because he gave us some great feedback, which is used to be my favorite show. They've lost a little bit of magic. Um, a big part of the issue is that it takes them a long time to get into talking F1. But I think that's a concession <laughs> you and I are make, willing to make charged. because we're friends. Yep. But the only time we talk is when we record this podcast. So we have to get that socializing out of the way. Uh, I hear Zero Two gives us five stars, right? Scuderia F1 hits every major story and caters to both new and old fans. Best F1 podcast out there. L the Leopard writes, I really wish these guys were around when I started watching F1 one as a child with my father in the late 70s. Being quite knowledgeable, the two marks provide an enjoyable listening experience. Of all the F1 podcasts I've tried, and there are many I refuse to miss any of this one. And then finally, Deuce Pipestone writes, great show. Least I can do is provide a positive review. Solid listen for all F1 enthusiasts. So thank you to everybody that made the effort to give us a rating and a review. Yeah, absolutely. And having said that, uh, now's a good time to, to wrap it up. If you want to get in touch, send us an email at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com or send us a tweet at scooteryf1pod on the Twitters. And that's it. That's a wrap. That, um, no race this weekend, but we'll come back on Sunday night and we'll, we'll throw something together as we usually do on uh, off weekends. So until then, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.